Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day. Dads, we're grateful for you. You do some hard work raising your children, the fear and admonition of the Lord. And uh, it's needed, desperately needed. Um, it's a little ironic that I'm speaking on singleness uh, this morning when it's Father's Day, especially when Paul in the very first lines we heard this morning were, I wish that all men were as me. Um, would seem we would have no Father's Day were Paul to have his wishes. So um, I'm speaking on singleness because Kevin, um, Kevin asked if I could speak. I, I don't think we realized it was Father's Day when we, when we planned this. Um, actually, I'm going to move forward. Uh, I am single, but I promise it's not contagious. Um, get out of the sun a little bit. So, yeah, Kevin's, Kevin's been doing this bang-up job uh, taking us through Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, and, and painting just this beautiful picture of what marriage is. And when Kevin asked if I would speak, and was there something I'd like to speak to, I was like, you know what, what if I could speak to the beauty of singleness? What if I could uh, present a biblical understanding of why being single is a good? And, and so this talk is not for single people only. Uh, this is for all of us as the church. We need to uh, get out of our mindset that singles are just waiting uh, kind of on hold until they kind of figure out who they can marry. Uh, singleness in and of itself is a gift from God. We're going to see that in the text. Uh, we're going to see that singleness is good. Um, it isn't better than marriage. It is other than marriage. Um, but the church needs to start to value uh, singleness in a way that perhaps it hasn't done too well. Uh, statistically speaking, 50% of adult Americans are currently single. Uh, that number has been slowly on the uprise since the 1960s when it was about 27%. That includes uh, those who have lost a spouse, uh, those who are divorced, those who have never been married, uh, currently, 19% of adult men have never been married, and 16% of adult women have never been married. So we need to learn how to uh, value singles, uh, know how to call forth their gifts within the church, and uh, employ their gift for the glory of God. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 7. If you guys have your Bible, please open it up. 1 Corinthians 7, we'll look at verses 7 and 8, and then verses 31 through 35. So let me pray. Father, thank you that you have given us the covenant of marriage, and by it you demonstrate to us your redeeming love for the world. But thank you that you've also given us singleness, and by it you show us the all-satisfying contentment that is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds to not only know your word, but to bring it to bear on our lives, married or single, and that we would leave here desiring to follow you, devoted with undivided hearts. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So let's look at this text. We're in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. We already heard this. I wish that all of you were as I am. Uh, Paul, we're assuming, is expressing this sentiment from a place of joy and contentment, not wanting to share misery and spread misery on other people, that singleness is actually desirable. Paul wishes for everyone to experience singleness the way that many of you experience marriage. 
uh, I'm, I wouldn't say a victim, but I, I would say many married couples have tried to get me married. Um, and out of their great joy of marriage, have tried to connect me with single friends of theirs. And uh, Paul is taking that same approach with singleness here. He's saying, man, if I could just sit down with all these single people and just convince them of how beautiful and wonderful it is to be single, I would do that. Yet, Paul also concedes that marriage is good. Let's look at the, the next part of this verse. He says, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, singleness. Another has that, marriage. That this is actually a gift, a gift of grace. Charisma is the word. So both marriage and singleness are gifts. So we ought not try to force either on another person, but rather help people discern what gift do you actually have. The problem is a lot of people don't view singleness as a gift. Um, when I was, uh, I was about 9 or 10, it's kind of windy up here, my papers are... There we go. It was about 9 or 10. I'd asked for a remote control car for Christmas, kind of one of those big ones. Um, and my family, uh, they go all out at Christmas, and anything you put on your list, either mom and dad get it for you or the grandparents get it for you. It's just the way our family operates. And I'd asked for this really awesome remote control car, child's dream. Didn't get it from mom and dad, nor did I get it from the other set of grandparents on Christmas Day. And so when we hopped in the car and drove up to New Jersey to my, to my dad's folks, I was like, all right, Nana and Grandpa, they're going to have the remote control car for me. And sure enough, I show up, and there's a box about this big wrapped with my name on it. Um, and, I, and one of the things my family does, they always kind of save the best gift for last. Like, that's the last gift you get to open on Christmas morning. And so we're, we're opening all the presents at Nana and Grandpa's, and here's this big box waiting for me. And I'm like, this is it. I know it is. Last gift is going to be my remote control car. So I tear off the wrapping paper, open the box, and it's an empty box. And I see my mom and dad, they're just kind of like smiling, like with this evil grin, because they knew that I thought it was a remote control car, when in fact, it was an empty box for me to collect my comics in. And while functional was not at all what I wanted. So I ended up not getting... Uh, the gift I desired, and I think that's a little bit of how uh, sometimes we feel with the gift of singleness, is I did not ask for this gift, I do not want this gift, why, why it's functional, it is not desirable. And Paul is saying, no, nah, this is a desirable gift. He goes on to say in this, the next verse, he says, this gift is actually good. Verse 8, now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good. This is a good gift for them to stay unmarried. The word good in English, it's a really thin word. We throw it around like, hey, did you see that movie? And we're like, yeah, it was good, um, which kind of means it's okay. Uh, good doesn't mean much to us, but in the Greek, the word good is a really thick word. It means moral beauty. It has a component to it of rightness, but also attractiveness. That when something is good, there's a motivational draw towards it. And that's how Paul is pointing to singleness. He's saying that singleness ought to be inspiring to others. When they see a life well lived as a single life, that it ought to call attention to others to say, I want to live that kind of a life. It's motivational, it's beautiful, and it's good. Well, how is it good? Why is it good? 
Let's look at verse 32 through 35. So 32 through 35, Paul starts with some bookends. Let's look at these. He says, I, I would like for you to be free from concern, verse 32. And at the end of verse 35, I want you to have an undivided devotion to the Lord. Free from concern, negative statement. Undivided devotion, positive statement. Uh, you shouldn't be caught up, worried about stuff. Instead, singularly focused in devotion to the Lord. Free from concern, undivided devotion. Singularity of heart and mind makes singleness. Soren Kierkegaard said it this way, purity of heart is to will one thing. This is the single life. The capacity to remain focused singularly on the Lord. Because, as we're going to see, he's going to show a comparison between single men and married men, single women, married women, and he's going to say that the singles have this great capacity to singularity of focus, whereas married folks necessarily need to attend to the things of this world. So let's look at this. So verse 32b through 34a, Paul writes, says, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. So he's saying that single men are capable, not that they do it well, but they're capable of singularly focusing on what Jesus is calling them to do and be in life. Whereas a married man still has that same responsibility, yet he has to necessarily, in a very good way, attend to his family, the needs of his wife. He's going to say the same thing about single women and married women. Verse 34, B and C. It says, an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world. How can she please her husband? A single woman has a singular aim, Paul says. She's only shooting at one target. If she gets good enough, she's going to be able to hit that target every single time. A married woman, she's got multiple targets, husband, kids, and, and she's trying to take aim at all of those, plus the Lord, extremely difficult. Now, he's not saying marriage is bad. He's saying it's more challenging. It's difficult to fulfill your primary call as a human to keep Jesus and the Lord's will centered. Challenging, extremely challenging. And he's not saying that being single is easy. He's simply saying it's simpler. So we've seen him use this phrase, this world, twice. But right before this text in verse 31, he uses it again three times in about five verses. He says, in verse 31, it says, For this world in its present form is passing away. The married man is concerned about the affairs of this world. The married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world. So what does Paul mean by this world? Now, depending on how you're raised, when you hear the word world in Scripture, your mind may instantly go to the world of flesh and the devil, evil, corruption, bad things. That's not what Paul's referring to here. The word here is the word for the created order, this world. He's saying that this world requires certain things in this temporal age because the world is passing away. So he's saying, simply put, if you're married, you have demands that are placed upon you that are of this world but will not be present in the world to come. What does that mean? It means you won't be married in heaven. So let's take a look 
at our gospel text, Luke 20, if you want to flip with me to that, Luke 20, 27 through 36. So Jesus is being confronted by some guys who don't really like him. They're the Sadducees. Um, they're kind of a little left-leaning in their day, and they say there is no resurrection. And so they're coming to test Jesus. So they, they show up in verse 27 and 28. They're going to remind Jesus of something that the Mosaic Law says. So they say this. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us. Here they're going to quote or uh, paraphrase Moses. Jesus, um, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children... The man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, what they're quoting or referencing is uh, Leverite marriage. Uh, this is where, if you're familiar with the, the book of Ruth, Ruth's husband has died, and so Boaz steps up as a kinsman redeemer to marry her. And the whole purpose of this is to carry on the family line, that if uh, a woman's husband passes away before she's able to have children, then that man's line ends, his name ends, with his death. And so a brother needs to be responsible, step in and marry this woman so that she can have children so that the family line can continue. So this is what the Sadducees are saying as they're coming to Jesus. And they're going to present a little hypothetical situation that's a little bit over the top where a woman is going to go through seven men, none of them giving her children, and they're going to present, uh, present Jesus with a problem because if there's a resurrection, then who's she going to be married to? So here's the hypothetical situation, 29 through 33. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since, there were, since the seven married to her? So, here's Jesus' response. Verse 34. The people of this age, a.k.a. this world in Paul's language, marry and are given in marriage. And here Jesus is going to throw open the doors of heaven and give us a glimpse of what's to come. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead, meaning those who trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Question, who will the woman who's been married to seven different dudes be married to? Jesus says, no one. Why? Because there's no marriage in heaven. My dad's dad, my biological grandfather, died before I was born. And my nana remarried, and I had a great step-granddad. But in heaven, my nana is not going to have two husbands. There aren't going to be, um, what is it, sister wives? What would they be, brother, brother husbands? There will not be brother husbands in heaven. Love is eternal. Marriage is not. In the age to come, all will be single because all will be married. Let's say this again. In the age to come, all will be single in regards to one another, because all will be married to the Christ, the groom of the church. There will be one husband in heaven.
a primary purpose of marriage in this world is to actually demonstrate to the world Jesus' suffering love for his bride, the church, and to demonstrate the church's trusting love and obedience of her Lord and husband. See also Ephesians 5, 22-33. So marriage is meant to demonstrate, among other things, God's commitment to lovingly redeeming the brokenness of this world, of this age. Marriage says to the world, God has redeemed you. Singleness says to the world, God will satisfy you. Marriage points back to Genesis. Singleness points forward to Revelation. Marriage is not about the couple. It's about redemption. Singleness is not about the individual. It's about satisfaction. So singleness is a signpost pointing to the world to come where there will be no marriage because all will be satisfied in Christ. So let's get our last verse in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 35. Paul says, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you. In other words, this isn't a law, this isn't a commandment. You're free to marry, I'm not trying to hold you back. So I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way. There's a right way to live. Married and singles are called to this, and it is this, in undivided devotion to the Lord. Right living requires devotion to Jesus. This word devotion is the only place it shows up in the New Testament, and it means to attend to or to sit near. It's the picture of a servant sitting at the side of his master, waiting for the command, waiting for the call to go or to do or to act. If you guys are familiar with Downton Abbey, uh, one of my favorite shows, check it out if you haven't seen it. It's set in the early 1900s in the, in the British aristocracy. Uh, I forget the family's name, but they live in a large castle, and on the lower floors is where the servants live. And in the kitchen, there's this wall, and on the wall is the names of all the rooms in the upper part of the house, and at each room, there's a bell. And up in the upper parts of the house, there's just a string, and if something is needed, whoever's up there just pulls the string, and it rings the bell down in the servants' quarters, and the servants look, and there they go, up to attend to the needs of the family. That is what this picture is, that all of us, single or married, ought to be able to live in so much attentiveness to what the Lord is asking of us in life that as soon as the bell rings, we're ready to roll, we're ready to go. This is living in a right way, and it's for all people, not just singles, married as well. One of the things I like to teach my students at JMU is the difference between uh, chronos and kairos. They're two Greek words for time. The word chronos, you might be familiar with it, is where we get our word chronology. Um, chronos was actually the Greek god of time. And he's a bit infamous uh, because he's known for eating his children. And that's what time chronos does to us. Living on the calendar, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. It just consumes our life. It eats us up. And it is not good for us. This is what chronos living does. And most of us as Americans live in that type of a, a lifestyle. Kairos is the Greek word for time, meaning an opportune moment. 
In other words, it requires attentiveness. It requires seeing what's happening around me, even right now in the midst of this church service. I'm not here to simply get through the worship service. I'm here to be attentive of what the Lord is doing, not only in the speaking of his word or in worship, but who's not here this morning? Who doesn't look well this morning? Lord, should I go and speak to such and such a person? I'm not here for my needs. I'm here to attend to the Lord's needs in this opportune moment of what he's ordained. And that goes for your family, standing in the grocery line, driving your car, being at work. Kairos living is what this undivided attention is about, this devotedness of life. It's not, it's not just responding to the bell when it rings. It's the capacity to even hear the bell when it rings. And most of us live calendar to calendar, time to time. I do this next, I go, I accomplish it, and I go to this. And I'm not fully attentive to what the Lord might be asking me to do. This is where singles have the edge. We don't have to think about anything. (laughs) Nothing of this world, no family, no wife. Not that I don't have worries or concerns, I do. But I'm able to be more attentive. Now, married people, you have to be just as attentive. But for singles, this is our great gift to the church and to the world is that I'm able to move with greater fluidity throughout life. And as the Lord rings the bell, I'm supposed to hear it, and I can respond with greater quickness and ease. So being single is not a cop-out for people who just can't marry. It is a positive picture of a devoted life in this world and in the life to come. To be single is not to be myopically self-pitying, nor is it to be selfishly autonomous. It is to be devoted, focused, simple, singular, in demonstrating to the world the satisfying goodness of God. So our question this morning is not, will I be single or married, but will I be devoted? We encourage you to devote yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing more satisfying in life than to live wholly and fully for him. You can do that as a a married couple, and you can certainly do it as a single person. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for these two vocations, these two calls, these two gifts, and how significant they are in this world as a missional signpost to your redeeming work and to your satisfying goodness. Lord, would you help us all to find contentment in you so that whether single or married, we're able to be of good service to you, devoted, hearing your call, responding. Lord, we pray for those who are married that you would enable them to more fully live this out. It's a, it's a more challenging responsibility. So Lord, would you equip them? And for those who are single, Lord, would you lift their eyes up off of themselves, be it in the sadness of their singleness or uh, the selfishness of their singleness? Mm -hmm. Would you turn their eyes to you and help them to find the joy in being in full service to you? It's in your name we pray. Amen.